At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. This podcast contains adult themes and language. Listener discretion is advised. If you take a drive down US 61 or Highway 77 in Scott County, Missouri, or any of the small highways or county roads, you'll be reminded of slower times. The rural landscape blossoms with all kinds of crops, from cotton and rice in the southern flat fields to berries and melons toward the middle. There are places near Benton and Kelso and Commerce that might remind you of the Shire from The Lord of the Rings. The eastern edge of Scott County is defined by the Mississippi River. In Commerce, you can sit on the bank and watch the muddy water roll by, sometimes peacefully and sometimes forcefully. The river's many floods created some of the most fertile land you'll ever find, if you can keep it dry enough to get the seeds in. Mother Nature gives, and it takes. On its surface, the business landscape matches this Shire-like image. It draws on a family-friendly reputation and southern hospitality. Lambert's Cafe, for example, juices the economy for the sister cities of Sykeston and Minor. Billboards for hundreds of miles in all directions advertise the throwed rolls and the country fixins. The food is good there, the helpings are massive, and the servers are happy. So yeah, Scott County appears to be this beautiful, peaceful place. Its lands have produced such fine people as the Drury family, which built the Drury Hotel franchise, and Otto Porter, a successful NBA player, and even Neil Boyd, an opera singer who once won America's Got Talent. But Scott County is not the Shire. Within its crevices, the county has spun a dark thread of crime, of murder, corruption, and drugs. Human nature gives and takes, too. The same soil that produces strawberries, cotton, hotel moguls, and a world-famous opera singer also buried a girl named Angela Michelle Lawless. Michelle Lawless was 19 years old, a college nursing student. She was a soul lost much too soon. A beautiful, petite girl with a bubbly personality and a heart to help people, Michelle Lawless was brutally murdered in the early morning hours of November 8, 1992. Unfortunately, the tragedy doesn't stop there. In the summer of 1994, in fact the same day that O.J. Simpson made his famous Bronco ride, a thin, pale, sometimes homeless white kid was sentenced for Michelle's murder. Josh Kieser would spend nearly 16 years in prison for a crime he did not commit. Josh never met Michelle, but their stories intersected at Interstate 55 and Highway 77. Michelle's murder is still unsolved, but there are suspects, there are secrets, 
there are questions and theories to unearth the reasons why Michelle was killed and why Josh was railroaded. You have to get into the soil of Scott County. You have to go to where five gallon buckets of methamphetamine were buried in backyards and along fence rows. You have to peek under the rocks of court transcripts. You have to go to the exit ramp, the stop sign, the payphone, the outer road. You have to go to Michelle's grave. You have to go to where the secrets are buried. I'm your host, Bob Miller. You're listening to The Lawless Files. Bill was kind of a kingpin uh, in Scott County for a lot of illegal activities going on. I, he, was a, he was a crooked sheriff. There's no, there's no question about it in my mind. Even then, at that time, we all knew, you know, you didn't go down there and do anything if, you know, Bill Farrell did not want you in his county. It was fucking horrible, Bob. It was the biggest frame-up awful job. Norm threatened anybody that backed off this case that I gave that, quote, face down in a cornfield. All right. Can we start uh, by you just kind of introducing yourself and who you are and the role that, that you've played all these years? Uh, my name's Rick Walter. When all this uh, started back in uh, November of 92, I was a reserve deputy with the Scott County Sheriff's Office. And later, uh, ran for sheriff against Bill Farrell in 2000 and lost. Uh, pretty close election, so I decided to run again in 04, and uh, that time I won the election and become sheriff. The interview you're about to hear is one of many I've done with Rick Walter about this case. He's one of many characters in this story, one of scores of people I've talked to, and he's also one of the most important. Because not only is he one of the first people to see Michelle's body that night, he's also largely responsible for the exoneration of an innocent man. To start this podcast, I decided to take Walter back to the Sheriff's Department where Michelle's story started for him. I wanted to retrace his steps and let him tell in his own words what he witnessed and what he remembers about that night. I also wanted to give you, the listener, a lay of the land to describe some of the important places in this story. Well, that night I was, the old jail uh, sits were in front of where the new jail is located. And that was where the dispatch area was. And I was in the uh, dispatch area that night doing a background check on a new reserve officer. I was a reserve, a commander of reserves at that time. And I guess it was, uh, I don't remember the exact times uh, that the, this couple came in and they told us that there was a, a vehicle sitting on the off ramp, uh, they're Benton off of uh, by 77 and 55 and said there was, uh, wasn't anybody around that they could see and that the car was running uh, with no one around it and gave their information, their names, phone number, and they left. Um, that time I decided to, uh, I was going to go down and check it out because uh, back then we didn't have a full-time road deputy at night. And Roy Moore, who was working Benton City, 
had just gotten off of work and uh, he asked if he'd ride down with me. So we didn't take a patrol car. We took my personal vehicle and just drove down to the uh, scene to see what we could find out. The couple who walked into the jail that night were Jerry and Ruth Householder. They walked in shortly before 1.25 a.m. Ruth was driving and Jerry was riding shotgun. They saw a car and it was still running, but they could not see anyone inside it. Jerry started to get out to check the situation, but Ruth thought better of it, and it was her decision to drive to the sheriff's station. Investigative documents show that about the same time that Mr. and Mrs. Householder were reporting the stalled car, a man named Roy Easter was coming home from a pool tournament in nearby Charleston, Missouri. He saw a man about six foot to six foot two walking near the crime scene. On the way down, we just thought maybe somebody had passed out, maybe from what the uh, the people came in. They that's kind of what we the way they acted and what we thought. It was just maybe uh, somebody had been drinking and pulled off the side of the road and passed out. Okay. Can you can you tell me who else was working with you that night? That night there was two other folks working uh, in the jail uh, as a jailer and dispatcher, and Wes Dury was the uh, I believe was the dispatcher, and Jimmy Newman was the jailer, and at that time you just kind of took turns doing both jobs. So uh, who was officially the dispatcher and who was officially the jailer that night? I don't remember. I just know that they would just interchange with each other and work that night. It took us about three minutes to drive from the sheriff's office to the crime scene. Benton, Missouri is a very rural place. There aren't a lot of street lights on this stretch. It's busier now than it was back in 1992. There was a small gas station called Cutmart off to the left, but it was closed. When Walter and his colleague Roy Moore made that drive that night on November 8th, it was cold. There was a thick fog. There would be frost in the morning. As they approached the exit ramp, cars and semis passed on the interstate, their drivers having no idea a life had just been taken. Okay, we're gonna drive across the overpass, and I'm just gonna pull over here, kind of on the other side of the road where that van. Walter and Moore drove over the bridge and turned right, going the wrong direction on the exit ramp. Walter pointed his headlights at the maroon Buick Somerset. The car was parked behind the stop sign, off on the shoulder, her wheels pointed straight. The car was stopped far enough behind the stop sign that Walter's car had enough room to park in front of her so that the back end of his car was not impeding traffic going east and west on Highway 77. Uh, then what happens? We, we, uh, we got out of the car, which with me pointing southbound, my driver's side, my driver's side was uh, uh, on her passenger side. So whenever I got out of my vehicle, I walked up to the passenger side. Roy got out and was walk he walked up straight up to the car on the driver's side. And uh, that's, he said, there's, I shine my flashlight inside the vehicle because there wasn't, uh, there wasn't any light on. Uh, there wasn't a, st there wasn't a street light here at that time. There wasn't any lights inside the vehicle that you could see inside until we shined our light inside it. And that's when Roy said, it looks like there's somebody in the vehicle. I tried to open the passenger side door and it was locked. And that's when I went around the, uh, the car to the driver's side and opened up the door. And uh, that's when we saw Michelle. Okay. The car. So, so, so it was you that, that, that saw her or was it Officer Roy saw her first? 
Well, he's I, when I shine my light on her, he actually said that. He said okay. that there's somebody in the car. Okay, so you definitely saw her. Yes. You were, you were one of the first pe people to see her. Something that you just said, and in all my research that I didn't realize, um, but you said the, the dome light was not on at that point. Well, if, if let me put it this way. If there was a dome light in that vehicle, it wasn't enough to light up uh, the inside of the car. Okay. And, and even back then, you know, the uh, the lights the interior lights of a vehicle wouldn't really light it up that much anyway but uh even if it was on it wasn't enough to light up the inside of the car I, we couldn't see anything until we actually shined our flashlights inside the vehicle okay now you've got a serious situation so then at this point i'm, I'm assuming you uh call back to the sheriff's department yeah at that at that time we uh, attempted to get a response from her she wasn't responding um I went back to my vehicle and, and called on the radio. I called out that I needed uh, the EMS to respond, which would respond first responders and also uh, the ambulance service. And that I did need uh, other assistance from law enforcement, which would have been the sheriff's office. And uh, that's whenever uh, they put the page, the dispatch page out to the rescue squad and also the ambulance service to respond. So Rick Walter and Roy Moore have just discovered that there is someone in the car. They check on Michelle and she is not responding. He calls into the sheriff's department where Russ Dury and Jimmy Newman begin calling EMTs and law enforcement to the scene. Walter greets the first EMTs to arrive, watching them and guiding them to ensure they disrupt the crime scene as little as possible. It's about that time when the chaos was at its peak in the sheriff's office when something rather unusual happened. A man walked into the sheriff's office, shaken, announcing his name as Matt Abbott. He told Drury that he had just come from the Benton exit where a girl had been shot and killed. Well, we didn't, obviously, we, I didn't know anything about it. And, um, you know, we, uh, like I said, we, you know, I had, had con called them, called out for help. And uh, then as people started arriving, uh, rescue started, you know, they was some of the first that got there. Uh, the ambulance service got there, you know, my concern was that, of course, you know, life-saving is first, but I also uh, didn't really, didn't really have a lot of faith that she was still alive. I thought maybe she had already, she was dead, and that I didn't want the scene contaminated, so I asked them to be very careful and try to keep as many people out of the scene as possible. Later, I learned that uh, somebody else had came into the sheriff's office to report that they had saw this they saw this vehicle down here um, that morning after it was probably closer to eight o'clock uh, after we got finished with the scene down here and me and a couple of other guys took it upon ourselves to search the area to see if we could find anybody uh, we made our way back to the sheriff's office to dispatch and I had to kind of complain to the dispatch I had complained to Wes a little bit because uh, he kept calling me doing you know asking me if there's any, any we need any help or what anything was going on and and i said you know we was kind of busy i could hear the radio from my car i didn't have a portable I, I i had to keep going back to my car to answer dispatch on the radio and uh, he said well we thought the shooter was still down there and that at that point i was i was kind of surprised i said how did you know that she had been shot and he said because uh Abbott, and, and he, I don't remember if he told me Mark or Matt, but he, he said it, one of the Abbots had came in and said 
you need to get somebody down at that off ramp down on the interstate because there's a girl being shot. And and that was the first time that I heard that. And and uh, and we at the time whenever we was here at the scene, we didn't know she had been shot. I think it's worth accentuating Walter's point here. Walter was the first at the scene. He was securing the scene. And down at the sheriff's office, jailer West Jury had received information that the girl had been shot. But that message, according to Walter, was never relayed to him. He worked the scene for eight hours before learning about that report. So I just want to take a moment. We're, we're sitting here at the, uh, at the, at the crime scene. We're, we're pulled off on the side of the road here, um, just beyond the, uh, the exit ramp. And we can see right here, there's a mobile home sales lot that's, that's about, what would you say, Rick, about... 100 yards or so. Yeah, a little over 100 um, It's kind maybe. of a triangular type field that's here. And, and right in front of the uh, the sales lot, there's an outer road that goes and, and winds back kind it, of into the distance. Of, it goes down and dead ends about a half mile past yeah. the treasure sales. The first officer after Rick Walter and Roy Moore to arrive at the scene was Officer Kinsley from the Missouri Highway Patrol. Only five minutes after the householders reported an abandoned car, a man claiming to be Matt Abbott reported a girl had been shot and killed. Walter and Moore had discovered a girl's body inside a car, but they'd yet to determine the cause of death. It wasn't too long after that when another strange thing happened. Moore watched a car turn around on the outer road in front of the trailer sales lot and turn back toward the crime scene. Officer Moore stopped the car as it came up the hill. And um, the, the vehicle pulled up and stopped. And Roy asked him, you know, he, he said, you need to move on. And they asked what was going on and that they were looking for gas. Moore later testified that he observed a white car coming from a westerly direction. He saw it drive over the overpass, head east, and he saw it turn down the outer road and come back real slow. In his testimony, Moore said, quote, I'm not fluent at all in Spanish, but he spoke very little English. The best I could tell, he was asking where he might go and get some gas. I just asked him what he was doing there, and that's when he asked me if there was a place in town I could get gas. I had to ask him this a couple of times because the first time I didn't understand him real clear. Unquote. Moore did not get a license plate number. He admitted that was a mistake. He said the car was a late model station wagon or possibly a hatchback. He said there was just one man in the car. A few minutes later, though, it happened again. A car drove down the outer road near the sales lot and turned around slowly and came back toward the crime scene. But this time, the man did not speak broken English. Right. Yeah, he, that's when he, uh, he said, I'm the one that reported this. Uh, Roy Moore contacted dispatch. He contacted West Drury and he said, hey, I've got a guy here that uh, was the first one, was one of the first ones to uh, see this and turn it in. And he said, I'm going to send this person up to the sheriff's office. And West Drury radioed back and told Roy Moore that he knew who it was, that he could go ahead and just send him home, and they would talk to him later. Uh, Roy responded and said on the radio and said, I'm going to hold him here and let a deputy talk to him to uh, get, his, get some information. And again, West Drury told him, he said, I know who it is. I personally know this guy. You can send him home. We'll contact him later. So this man, who gave his name as Matt Abbott, 
and was the first to report the death, much less a homicide, was released from the sheriff's department by West Jury, who was manning the phones at the jail. Matt Abbott then returned to the crime scene, first driving down the outer road, turning around and stopping to talk to a police officer. We're a mere 10, 15 minutes into an active crime scene and already law enforcement has three times released the first witness to report the crime. And they also failed to get the license plates of two vehicles driving suspiciously at the scene. Or did not get the license plate of this vehicle either. The investigation was not off to a good start. So who, who's in charge of the scene at that point? Whose decision would it be to send a, a witness? Well, at, at that point, we, I don't think I had a deputy at the scene. Um, at that point, I was, again, I was a reserve deputy, but yeah. I, you know, I, with the authority of the sheriff's office, um, Roy was not commissioned deputy at the time. So he was technically, he was out of his jurisdiction and I didn't know that he had talked to this guy mm -hmm. because I, again, I was still at the vehicle trying to secure the scene and not, not allow anybody to, to uh, contaminate it. Yeah. So his direct. Uh, the, the direct authority over Roy at that time would have been West Drury because okay. he was calling, he would have been calling the shots because Roy was talking to him on the radio. Okay, all right. Well, that makes sense. If uh, if Chief Deputy Tom Beardsley would have been there already, and it didn't take him too long to get there because he doesn't live too far away, but that would have normally been his call if he was on the scene, correct? Oh, yeah. And if he was on the scene, uh, or if any other deputy would have been on the scene, or even if Roy would have asked me, um, you know, you would have definitely held this guy to 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 question him. So there was Roy. The only person that Roy was able to talk to at the time was Wes because he was he was dispatching, and Wes had made this guy had made contact with Wes, and uh, so therefore Wes and he said I know him personally, so it's he's good to go. Had, had Tom Beersley been here, he or any other deputy at the time, or if Roy would ask me, I would have said send him to the sheriff's office and we'll questioning later yeah because um at this point you're under the assumption that there's been a murder normally there would be a, a real sense of urgency that that there could be some a murderer in the proximity of this that you know you need to be on the lookout for and so any information that would come in would probably be important right exactly well because of the way that mr abbott reported this he reported it that there's a girl been shot you know, and at that point, he's the only one that knew that she had been shot. We didn't know until after being on the scene for a little bit when we found the spent casings uh, inside the vehicle. We didn't because the majority of the blood in the vehicle was from blunt trauma. It wasn't from the gunshots itself. So, you know, at that point, you know, yeah. it she could have been beaten. It could have been be a yeah. beating, could have been a stabbing. You don't, yeah. you don't know where that blood's coming right. from. Right. Right. Yep. So whenever whenever he walked whenever he walked in and told Wes, uh, there's a girl been shot. Uh, at that point, he never should have left the sheriff's office. He should have he should have been set down right there. And uh, normally that's what you would have done, and and have him questioned by investigator. Yeah. Walter mentioned earlier that he was a reserve deputy. Reserve deputies in Scott County were unpaid volunteer positions. Walter was one of several officers that night, paid or otherwise, who worked through the entire night. Before long, the coroner arrived and pronounced her dead. They took her body away. Several officers worked the scene that night. The highway patrol handled a lot of the evidence gathering, taking photos and videos. 
The sheriff, Bill Farrell, and Deputy Brenda Shivitz notified the family, and they started gathering information, such as the names of boyfriends. Soon, Farrell and Shivitz would visit the home of a boy named Leon Lamb. In the meantime, Walter and others, including Chief Deputy Tom Beardsley, searched the area, especially around the sales lot, checking all the unlocked mobile homes. They found nothing. One of the things we should talk about right now before we get too far ahead is uh, that night um, and into the next morning, they found a blood trail down the embankment uh, beyond the guardrail, correct? Yeah, they actually found it that night and was and videoed the, uh, the that scene. It was over the, uh, looked like that she had been crossed, crossed over the guardrail and uh, she was down, there's a, a pretty steep slope here off the overpass and there was two areas that was, uh, the grass, the weeds were kind of high, two areas that was mashed down, looked like there had been a fight down at the bottom of that slope. And um, uh, there was blood, there's quite a bit of blood down uh, at the bottom of the slope in those two areas. And there was a blood trail going, what appeared to be going back up to the car, crossed over the uh, the guardrail. And that's where they had, uh, had blood transfer, where it looked like somebody was, and a blood transfer would be like uh, some blood had rubbed off of your pants or your hair or something mm -hmm. like that. And there was actually a couple droplets on the guardrail also. And uh, there was droplets going from the guardrail where they sh she was crossed over up to the front of the car. There was uh, blood, little blood droplets across the hood of the front of the hood of the car. And then there was a pretty good sizable uh, puddle within about a foot to 18 inches from the from the driver's front tire away from the car so the kind of the uh the immediate the immediate assumption is that she was down the hill something happened some sort of fight occurred and she was taken back to the vehicle or made her way back to the vehicle and then she was shot inside the vehicle that's what it appears. It, yeah. it appears that she was carried back up to the uh, back up the slope and, and and carried maybe across the guardrail and placed back in the vehicle. And I believe that once she uh, was back in the vehicle, uh, she may have been maybe she was knocked out and she regained consciousness. And I think that's whenever she may have set up, um, and that's whenever they shot her um, point blank in the face, the bullet traveled through, all the way through her into the headrest of the uh, passenger side of the vehicle. Um, her head was turned as she was and shot in the back of the head. Uh, that bullet lodged, went through her and lodged in under her right front eye. And then she was shot one more time in the back. And that bullet passed all the way through and uh, through her back through her breast and into her right forearm where she liked. What Walter just explained there is very important. Michelle was shot three times. The first time in the face, then in the head, and the last shot went through her back, out her breast, and the bullet lodged in her arm, the holes perfectly aligned. Walter made sure the crime scene was not altered by the EMTs when they checked her for her vitals. She was not moved from that position. There are two more details about the crime scene you need to know that are very important that Walter left out of his description. One was that the car was found with the window about halfway rolled down. And the second was that there were no rings on Michelle's fingers. Normally she wore rings on her hands. 
this is the outer road. This is how long it takes to get to the outer road. It's just right here. And uh, there's a sign here that says dead end and there's a long row of, of mobile homes. Was it kind of like this back then, Rick? Yeah, there wasn't. I mean, uh, it was set up similar to this. You know, it's asphalt now, which has been there for several years, but I don't think it was asphalt back at the time. By now, you might be wondering why I keep bringing up the sales lot. The mobile home sales lot plays a very interesting role in this case, and we'll get into that in future episodes. Glenn Freddle is the former boss of a man named Kevin Williams, a character that we will talk about in later episodes. There are several characters we will talk about later, but it helps to know that Michelle stopped on an exit ramp about a half a mile from her house. That exit ramp was a mere 100 to 150 yards from an outer road where two cars, minutes after the murder, turned around and drove slowly back toward the crime scene. Roughly six hours later, officers were still working the scene. Beardsley, the number two ranking officer in the department, had heard that Matt Abbott had reported the crime to the sheriff's office. West Jury, the jailer who released Abbott at the jail and then twice declined to keep Abbott for an interview just minutes after the murder took place, knew Abbott's father. Larry Abbott owned a gas station up in Scott City a few miles away where many of the officers would grab drinks and snacks on their breaks. When Jury called Larry, he found it wasn't Matt Abbott he talked to the night before. It was Mark. Mark Abbott. Matt Abbott's identical twin. So just a few hours into the murder, the Scott County Sheriff's Department didn't know who actually reported the crime. To this day, Mark Abbott claims he's the one who found Michelle's body and reported it to the Sheriff's Office. But I've got several sources who say otherwise. I seen the video that apparently was taken of Matt walking into the jailhouse to <clears throat> inform them of what was found on the exit ramp. Yeah. And I didn't take but a split second. I said, uh-uh, that's not Mark. I said, that's Matt. That voice you're hearing is a man by the name of Ronnie Burton. Burton is a man who's lived in Scott County nearly all his life. He's a good old boy. And he's a key witness in this case. He knows the Lawless family. He trained in karate with Michelle's father, Marvin. And he knew Michelle, too. You'll be hearing from Burton in later episodes because he was a witness to something very important. But I wanted you to hear this clip now because Burton establishes that it was Matt who reported the crime that night. And if it was Matt and not Mark who reported the crime, well, that would be a pretty big lie. When did you see that? I seen that at the sheriff's office. What, like right after the murder? Uh, it was right, right, I think, before the case. Before which case? Before Josh Kiesler got accused of it. Because they was asking me to identify, if I could identify them, because they so knew, was that, I knew both those boys. So was... One of the deputies that came to me, I didn't know all those guys. By Burton's description of where the deputy lived and the fact that he gave shooting lessons for conceal and carry permits, I deduced that the deputy that talked to Burton was actually Chief Deputy Tom Beardsley. Remember, the number two ranking officer. And that makes sense with a lot of other context you'll hear about soon. But we're getting ahead of ourselves a little bit. For now, what you need to know is that Burton knew the Abbots well. Burton did a lot of work for Larry Abbott, the twins' father. And he was around the gas station quite a bit where he saw the twins. Burton said he could tell the twins apart because they had different walks. 
he has no doubt in his mind that he saw Matt Abbott on that sheriff's surveillance video that night. Burton's statement matches a lot of other evidence that Matt reported the crime that night regarding the clothes they were wearing and the vehicles they were driving. The vehicle that the Abbott twin drove back to the crime scene when he had his interaction with Roy Moore was a car. Mark Abbott that night was driving a black S10. And I'd like to point out too that two sources, both speaking on the condition of anonymity, told me it was Matt and not Mark who reported the crime. Both of these sources were once very close to Matt Abbott. I'm going to take a quick programming break here to explain how you can find out more about the Michelle Lawless case and how you can support my work. I really need your support to keep going. Please go to thelawlessfiles.com and subscribe to get access to all kinds of content, including bonus podcast episodes, blog posts, timelines, and more. You can also binge listen to all the available episodes. Right now on the website, subscribers can find out what I hope this podcast and upcoming book can accomplish and how you can help. Subscribers can read in more detail about clues I found in public court records and information I still hope to uncover. There is also a reference guide to most of the names mentioned in this podcast, so that's just a sampling. But more than that, your support and subscriptions are important to make sure that my work can go forward. This project is four years in the making. So far, I've bootstrapped all the work with the help of family, friends, and colleagues. Please help me keep pushing by subscribing. If you're already a subscriber, thank you so much for your support. If you're listening and can't afford a subscription, you can help by simply sharing the episode with your friends or leaving a good review wherever you found this podcast. Before we return to the episode, I'd like to say that all this work is done in memory of Michelle Lawless, who lost her life and voice on November 8, 1992. The work is dedicated to the many abused women who are connected to the characters in this story and who share their experiences with us. You won't hear all their names, but we honor them for their courage and thank them for their trust. Your full name, please, ma'am. Heather Elaine Pierce Duperrier. Spell that last name. P-I-E-R-C-E dash D-U-P. The Lawless Murder Story is immensely complicated, and I want to keep things as simple as I can for you as we walk through this journey. I was able to gather a bunch of friends and colleagues to read sections of transcripts. I think the testimony you'll hear throughout this podcast is critical to the case, and I want to bring this information to you verbatim when possible so you can hear exactly what was said at different times. As a matter of transparency, it's important for you to know that our readers are not professional voice actors, but they are reading directly from the transcripts. We don't know exactly how voice inflections might have sounded based on the transcripts, so as you're listening, try not to put too much weight on how the voices sound, but what they are saying. The content that will be reenacted is essential, and I want to let you know that I'm, I'm trying to lay things out somewhat chronologically here to keep the story straight, but it will be necessary to jump ahead back and forth from time to time. Some of the depositions you'll hear will come from 1993, 1994, or even 2008. The deposition you're about to hear was taken in 1993. Are you from around here, ma'am? I'm originally from Missouri. I grew up in Washington State, and I've lived here for almost six years in Cape. Go to college or anything here? I'm getting ready to go to school. How old are your little kids? Five, three and a half, and two. I want to direct your attention to the night of, I think that would be Saturday night and early Sunday morning. It would be November 7th and November 8th, and that's the night that, crudely speaking, period of time that Michelle Lawless got herself shot down here. Uh-huh. 
Do you remember where you were, say, the Saturday night? Yes. All night? All right. Where were you? I was in Sykeston. In Sykeston? At Country Nights. That's a saloon? Yes. All right. And who did you go there with? My mother, Glenna Pierce. Where does Miss Pierce live? She lives with me. Same address. All right. Did you and your mama just go down there? Yes. Did you have it made up to meet somebody down there? I don't directly recall if I was supposed to meet anybody there. I usually did end up meeting Mark Abbott down there. We just knew that we usually went down there on the same nights, and we would meet and talk and dance and play darts. Who drove? My mother. What kind of car? It's a blue Cutlass. What time did you girls get down there? We usually got there about 10 o'clock, 10.30. All right. Was Mark Abbott there? Not at that time. You got there about 10.30, you think? 10 o'clock to 10.30. Why would you fix that time? Band was starting then or halfway through or was there a band? There's usually always a band. Is this a hillbilly joint, which they now call a country and western? Yeah. Was there a band that night? To my knowledge, there always is. Did your mother meet anybody in particular where she arranged to meet anybody in particular? No, she was bored that night. She wanted to hurry up and go home, but I was having fun. Did Mark Abbott show up? Yes. About what time? Probably about 11 o'clock, I guess. We had been there a little while when he showed. Anybody with him? I think he came with Kevin Williams. I don't know. They might have come separately. They were supposed to come together that night. They usually did come together. Where does Kevin Williams live, if you know? I think he's from Commerce. I came home and put my kids to bed, started to turn out the lights, and when I went to turn off the porch light, I saw Mark drive up out in front of my house. What time would that have been? I would assume shortly after 2 o'clock. And he indicated he was coming to see you? No, we had not made any arrangements to do so. I just went to turn off the porch light and I saw his truck driving in front of the house. And in he came? Yes. Tell me what story he was concocting at the time when he came in. That's what I thought. I thought this is just a concoction to come into the house. I didn't believe him. I just kind of let him tell a story. Well, tell me the story he told you as best as you can recall it. Okay, when I opened the door, he said, I think I just touched a dead girl. I might have blood on my hands. Where's the mirror? Where's the light? Where's the bathroom? And I directed him to there, and he went in and washed his hands and came back out shaking and... He was really shaking, was he? He seemed to be very upset and disturbed. He sat on the couch and told me that he had stopped, and there was a car stopped at the stop sign on the Benton exit. And he had stopped, gotten out, and there was a girl slumped over in the seat. And he had reached in and grabbed her and pulled her up to see if she was okay, if she had passed out or something. And he said he saw something what looked like maybe blood or holes in the back of her neck. And when he lifted her up, he saw more blood, and that frightened him, and he let her go. She fell back over, I assume, and he freaked out and got in his truck and left. Did he say what he'd done then? At first, he was just scared and leaving as soon as possible. And then he said he backtracked, went to, I think, a friend's house or somebody who would call and let the police know what he'd found. Who was the friend? I don't know. Somebody he knew. Well, you knew he had a living girlfriend down there, he tells us. I didn't really know that. At his quarters? He didn't let me know that. He gave his deposition about two weeks ago. It might have been when he went home to his girlfriend and called from there, but he didn't tell me he had a girlfriend until just recently. Actually, it wasn't a girlfriend. It was a wife, from what I knew. But he didn't say exactly where he stopped to make this call? No, he didn't. Or where he went to make this call? No. Did he say anything to you about he himself had contacted the police? 
I don't know whether he said. I thought maybe he had said that his friend might have been a policeman or a sheriff or something like that. But I wasn't really clear on what he was saying, whether it was just a friend and they called the police or if the person was some form of a law officer. Let me take you back a little bit. You said he reached in. Did he say he opened the door or the window was down? He said the window was down and the lights were on and the car was in park. By lights, you understood what we call don't. Did he mention anything about some fellow drove up who looked a little Hispanic? Uh-uh. That wasn't mentioned? Not that I can recall. All right. And he didn't mention to you that he went into the sheriff's office in Benton sometime before he got to you? I don't think so. I don't really recall a whole lot because I was still not sure if he was telling the truth. What else did he say about this? I know he was concerned with running into the, to the police because he had been drinking and he was driving and he didn't have a license, so he was not wanting to confront police because he was afraid he would get in trouble for drinking and driving without... Wasn't he pretty drunk? To my knowledge, he usually is. I would consider him a drunk. There's some mention that your mother told Sergeant Overby that Mark called in and reported the incident from Scott City. Did he say anything about he called in from Scott City? I assumed he reported it from somewhere in Benton, but that's just my assumption. I didn't ask any questions. Okay, so to summarize real quickly, Mark Abbott went to a girl's house after interacting with Michelle's body. Later, Mark would say he didn't even remember Heather's last name. But after this traumatic experience, that's where he landed. He went there frantic, saying he had blood on his hands. He would stay there for several hours, leaving shortly after 3 a.m. It's impossible to know what we might do in such situations, but I can't help but think this is strange behavior. If I were a person who'd just come upon a dead body and had been told by police to go home and someone would stop by in the morning, I think that's what I would do. Anyway, Mark did what he did. I'm not 100% sure that Mark went to Heather's house immediately, however. Sources speaking on the condition of anonymity say he went somewhere else before going to Heather's house. We'll have more on that information later. One important fact in the sound you just heard that I want to make note of is that Heather said Kevin Williams was at Country Nights Bar. Heather said they usually came together, but that night she thinks they might have come separately. Heather's mother, Glenna, confirmed this in a separate deposition. Okay, so we're moving through the timeline. We have the murder. We have an Abbott twin introducing himself as Matt reporting a shooting death to the sheriff's department. We have one of the Abbott boys returning to the crime scene. And then we have Mark stopping by Heather's house, whom he had seen earlier at the bar. Mark sleeps a few hours on the couch there. Now we're to a point where I'm going to skip ahead a bit, just a few hours. What Mark did the first thing in the morning is very, very interesting, and we'll devote more time to it later. But for now, we're going to skip ahead to Mark's first interview with police. Chief Deputy Tom Beardsley went to Mark's house twice that morning after the murder, but Mark was not at home. Beardsley finally caught up with Mark at about 12.30 after lunch at his trailer home in Scott City. I'm about ready to play you a reenactment of the complete interview between Beardsley and Mark Abbott. It's the baseline for everything else to follow. And it's important not just for what Mark Abbott says, but what he leaves out. So here we go. Again, this is a reenactment, but it's a verbatim account of the interaction. Can you tell me a little more about what happened when you first saw the car? Well, when I first saw the car, I just pulled off the side of the road, you know. Which way were you going? I was going north and got off at the exit. Okay, so you passed the car? Yeah, I pulled up beside it. The lights were on, the interior lights were on, and I could see somebody there. 
I thought somebody's drunker than hell, you know, late over is what I thought. And uh, I got out and I got to get this off the road. I got out and I reached in there and grabbed her. But when I did, I didn't even notice the, the blood or nothing. What I thought was, here's a little something. I thought this was a guy and I thought the person threw up on herself, you know, is what I was thinking when I picked her up. She was cold and bloody. And I said, oh, shit, I got to get the hell out of here. So then I got on the way home and I turned right around and I came back to you. Was the door open when you got there or was it closed? The driver's door. It was, I just reached in the window. It was closed. The window part way down? The window was all the way down. All the way down? Yeah, I think, you know, I mean, I, I could reach in there and grab a hold of her side. Was the motor running? I think so. The interior light was on. The lights was just bright as hell. The headlights, the, the parking lights. If it wasn't for the rings and stuff on her hand, I seen the rings on her hands, you know, you couldn't even tell it was in a girl. She was in bad shape. What were you driving last night? That truck right there. Pickup? Yeah. Did you see any other cars or other people in the area? Well... When I come up the exit, some guy looked like a hitchhiker. He looked like he jumped off in the ditch. You know, uh, that exit. I thought, no, that son of a bitch thought I was, that That was before I got to the car. I thought to myself, that son of a bitch thought I was trying to hit him or something with a vehicle. He jumped off, completely off that damn ditch, and I thought about that later. East or west side? On the side coming, he was walking this way. Okay, was he up on the highway? No, well, he was on the shoulder, see, the blacktop part. He jumped completely off the damn, just jumped completely off the off the damn blacktop. And I thought, that son of a bitch thought I was going to hit him or something, you know, with a vehicle. That was before I got up there. Did you get any kind of look at him, what he looked like? He was about her size, you know, a pretty good-sized person. What would you guess, about 5'10", 5'11"? Yeah. What colors did he have on? Gray. Something uh, a little lighter than these jeans. Something uh, like a sweatshirt. I wasn't paying that much attention, you know. Could you tell me what color the sweatshirt was? It was gray, you know, the, the blue and gray look. Was he wearing a hat? Mm-mm. How close did you get to him before he jumped out of the way? Or he jumped in the ditch? Had to be pretty close or I wouldn't have seen him in that truck. Probably, I could barely see him. I think I had low beams on and I kicked it on high right when I seen him. Just, you know, just basically that color sweatshirt. Lighter jeans, you know. It looked like they was wore out, you know, like they wasn't no dark blue like what you got on. Could you tell if his hair was dark or light? Dark, I think. He didn't really have no hat on. It was quick, really. I only seen the back of it. Could you see his feet to tell what kind of shoes he had on? No. You said you headed home after you checked her? Right here to the house. How far did you get down before you went back? I basically went straight there. I think I went right there. I headed home the Benton way. 61? Yeah, I thought I better get up there. That girl might be alive, you know. What's your best guess about what time all this took place? Oh, about 10 after 1, something like that. If you can think of anything else, give us a call, will you? I sure will. Did she make it? No. Who was she? Michelle Lawless. From Benton? Marvin Lawless's daughter. Was she right in the head? Her head was just covered with blood. You know, you could tell she... 
I'll be damned. I thought she was like an out-of-state person. She was 19. I knew she was young, just a little bitty girl. I picked her up real easy. God damn. We might need to get some elimination prints from you. They're lifting some prints out of the car. Mine are probably right there in the doorway. We may need to get some from you if you can come down there sometime today. Be okay in about an hour? Yeah. I believe I touched the damn doorway. I don't even know if I did or not. So that was Mark Abbott's first statement. Let's compare what he told Beardsley to what Heather Pierce said in her deposition. One of the more interesting differences is that Pierce testified that Mark stopped at a friend's house to call a police friend of his. Now Mark said he was headed home the Benton Way to avoid Scott City Police. Mark Abbott lived in Scott City, which is about eight miles or so to the north of the crime scene. The more common way to get from Sykeston, where Mark had been at the bar, was straight up Interstate 55 to the Scott City exit. The Benton Way is an indirect route on US 61, so you have to get off the interstate, make a left, go through Benton, take a right, and head several miles through Kelso to Scott City. But if you know the lay of the land, it wouldn't seem like any big advantage to go the Benton Way versus the interstate if you're looking to hide from Scott City Police. This is an important distinction for Mark to make because otherwise he would have no reason to be on that exit ramp in the first place. It would make complete sense to take 61 through Kelso after he reported the crime at the sheriff's office, but instead the Abbott twin, whichever one it was, went back to the crime scene back at the interstate interchange. Now let's get back to what Heather Pierce said earlier. She was asked about Mark's living girlfriend, Melissa Williams. Remember, Heather Pierce didn't know about a girlfriend. But Mark mentioned stopping somewhere and calling a friend, or maybe a cop, or maybe a friend who knew a cop. Mark didn't tell Beardsley about calling a cop or stopping at her friend's. Mark told Beardsley that he turned toward home and then turned around to go back to the sheriff's department and then returned back to his house. Now let's talk about his description of the lights for a moment. If you remember earlier in the episode, Walter talked about how dark it was and how he needed a flashlight. If there was a dome light on, Walter said it wasn't bright enough to see what was going on in there. However, Mark described it as being, quote, bright as hell, unquote. I think it's possible that maybe Mark's eyes were adjusted to the darkness and maybe Walter's weren't. Then we have the description of a hitchhiker walking down the shoulder of the exit ramp, jumping over the guardrail. Mark had a vague description of the man. Remember, he's giving this interview at 12.30 in the afternoon, nearly 12 hours after the murder. If it was Mark who reported the crime that night, and if it was Mark who returned to the crime scene, then Mark would have had two occasions to inform police officers that he had seen someone near the crime scene right after the murder. But the police were just learning of this. And I'm sure you noticed one of the more obvious and interesting exchanges. Mark Abbott asked Beardsley if the girl made it. The night before, the Abbott twin had told Jury that there was a dead girl who'd been shot down by the interstate. And there's one thing I need to point out for future reference, but tuck this one away in your memory. Beardsley asked specifically if Mark saw anyone or any cars near the crime scene, but the only person Mark mentioned was the hitchhiker jumping off the blacktop. At that interview, Beardsley wasn't armed with all of this information, I'm telling you. But here's one thing he did know. He knew the window of Michelle's car was halfway down. Beardsley testified many years later that he read Abbott's body language and based on his training, he said Mark looked nervous and appeared defensive. So Beardsley, the number two ranking officer in the sheriff's department behind Bill Farrell, would send Mark up to the jail for fingerprints and a second interview. 
Beardsley had every intention of talking to Mark again. Later, Beardsley would be the only member of the sheriff's department to ever state that Mark Abbott was a suspect. He made certain that other people in the department knew his thoughts on that. But that information, that Beardsley named him as a suspect, was kept secret for a long, long time. Beardsley never got a chance to interview Mark Abbott again. By the time he checked for footprints from a possible hitchhiker and got back to the sheriff's office, Beardsley had been taken off the case. In just another hour, Mark Abbott would give another interview with a different detective, Brenda Shivitz, an investigator who typically worked domestic and sexual violence cases. According to Beardsley, it would be her first murder case. The second interview with Mark Abbott was not recorded and transcribed like Beardsley. And in that interview, Mark introduced a different person and another vehicle near the crime scene. We have a murder girl. We have an identical twin. We have conflicting stories. We have all the ingredients of an injustice that defies all reason. I'm your host, Bob Miller. You're listening to The Lawless Files. Thank you for listening to The Lawless Files, a production of Leadhound Publishing, LLC. The Lawless Files is hosted and edited by Bob Miller and co-produced by Bob Miller and me, Tyler Grave. Music composed by Tyler Grave. We'd like to thank Jacob Wiegand, Jeff Long, Rachel Long, Jesse Dew, Kara Kaminsky, Chuck Kaminsky, Allison Miller, Shawnee Graves, Laura Ritter, Bobby Clubs, MJ DeGraff, Ben Matthews, and Mason Dukacek, who helped voice the court transcripts. Again, please go to thewallacefiles.com and subscribe. And subscribers, be looking for a bonus episode where Bob and I try to retrace the drive that Mark or Matt Abbott took from the crime scene, eventually ending up at Heather Pierce's house. Next time on The Wallace Files. July 2nd, 1992. Put money in the bank and got a new outfit. Spend a night at Laura's. Went and saw Jocko and went to Crackle. Met a guy named Mark. Got stuck in Cape. Our telephone pole was on fire when we went back for house. It's been storming.